This is The Premise, and I'm your host, Jennifer. Chad Thompson. De- no, Chad I, Thompson's the no, host. I'm the host. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson, the host. <laughs> Today on The Premise, Chad and I are speaking with Brooke Warner. Brooke is a writer, a publishing expert, a writing coach, and an educator. After 12 years in the publishing industry as an acquiring editor at Seal Press, Brooke co-founded She Writes Press in 2012. She is the author of Write On, Sisters, Voice, Courage, and Claiming Your Place at the Table, Greenlight Your Book, How Writers Can Succeed in the New Era of Publishing, and What's Your Book? A Step-by-Step Guide to Get You from Inspiration to Published Author, as well as two other books that she co-wrote with Linda Joy Myers, including Breaking Ground, On Your Memoir, and The Magic of Memoir. And if that isn't enough, folks, she is also a mom and the host of the podcast, Right Minded, Weekly Inspiration for Writers. But the thing I love most about you, Brooke, is how passionate you are about publishing and helping undiscovered authors get published and find their way in the publishing world. So, Brooke Warner, welcome to The Premise. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. So I'm going to start with Greenlight Revolution, which is a TEDx talk that you gave where you talked about how the industry has essentially closed the door to people who are not already known and or famous and how dangerous that is in terms of discovering new talent. You call these undiscovered talents greenlighters, artists and creators who don't take no for an answer, who essentially forge their own path, which you did, and we'll get to that. Can you speak to your experience as an acquiring editor and your passion for making space for greenlighters? Yeah, I that's, you know, a lot of that talk is the story of why I left traditional publishing. And I did leave because I was disillusioned because I was frustrated by some of the projects that I felt I was unable to acquire that I might have been able to acquire five or 10 years previous when there were more chances being taken. I, I was feeling a real squeeze within traditional publishing around what publishers were willing to take on. Um, it, it just, there was a big shift in those 10 years. I was actually at Seal Press for eight of those 10 years, uh, but I'm talking about the decade before I left um, left traditional publishing to go into non-traditional publishing, which is the space that I am in now. And it was a really intentional exit <laughs> uh, and, and, and mainly seeing so many of the of the shifts that were happening, people wanting to pursue self-publishing more, uh, higher levels of rejection, I think, in part being because there are more people writing books, but also in part because the traditional publishing industry was really uh, tightening the reins. And in my opinion, only acquiring books by authors who had author platforms Um you know, there's a good business reason for all of that. It's it's not right. completely unfounded. And so I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm taking the publishers to task a little bit. Uh, but mainly the reason that it's called Greenlight Revolution is in celebration of greenlighters. So yes, you might get rejected and the publisher may have good reason to reject you if you don't bring them enough of a fan base, you know, and just in terms of a business proposition alone. But uh, I, I, I'm really commending those authors who are going ahead and finding ways to get their work out into the world anyway. 
Mm, yeah. And I mean, I remember you talking about there were some books that you were really excited about that you thought there was a big audience for and yet you were told no. Yeah, I, you know, big audience is such a subjective, isn't it, though? That's true. <laughs> you know, in terms of like, did I think they had big audiences? I guess there was a lot of books that I thought had good audiences that definable mm. audiences. And I thought they were worth taking a risk on because of that. And the publisher, part of the problem during my time at Steel Press was that we were acquired by Perseus. And Perseus had a much more corporate outlook on the whole endeavor than the previous uh, parent company had. And now Seal has since been uh, acquired by Hachette. And so I imagine even more so. Mm. And what begins to happen with these corporate decisions is that they are very bottom line driven. And so a niche audience can be potentially problematic. But the problem is that it's a pretty myopic decision that's being made. You know, the people who are saying, oh, that's a niche audience, sometimes lack imagination about how to reach those audiences. And so when people would say something like, well, that's a niche audience, and it's a book, you know, for instance, the one that I highlight in my TED talk about trans families, well, do they actually know how niche that audience is? You know, our, our demographics are changing quite quickly. And I think being able to publish a book for trans families when more and more people are transitioning all the time is maybe not so niche as they think. And so that's mm -hmm. another part of the problem is just who's quantifying these audiences and, you know, do they even know how to reach them? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think anything or a lot has changed with regard to how big publishers are acquiring works between, you know, since the time you founded She Writes Press in 2012 and now? Uh, I think there's more focus on inclusivity only because the the conversation has been bubbling up so much. Boy, I do has it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially this year, actually. Right, yeah. um, I, so I think publishers have been really mindful about wanting to publish writers of color, wanting to publish diverse authors in other capacities, you know, whether it's LGBTQ or disabled or whatever your outlier person might be. But the problem is like, <laughs> the way that gets translated is sometimes kind of clunky. Um, and like, for instance, you you certainly are seeing more gay characters in fiction, <laughs> you know, or you certainly mm -hmm. are seeing more black authors. Um, I think what we see this year is with the Latino popu population saying, yeah, okay, but not us, right? The Mexican Americans are saying we're not getting a chance at these publishing deals. And so I think sometimes the publisher will sort of be like, oh, our, our solution to this is to acquire more of a certain kind of author. And then they think that checks their diversity list. And it's a, you know, it's a bigger equation than that. Mm -hmm. Boy, is it, you know, it's interesting. You compare the, you know, three indie movements there's you know indie music indie movies and now indie books and indie publishing i wonder do you think music leads the way for books which then leads the way for movies or do you see a pattern at um, all i guess i don't i'm not enough of an observer of the other industries to be able to speak on it the reason that i brought those into my tedx talk was because i wanted it to be relevant beyond just book publishing i wanted to say look this is the case in the arts it's not mm -hmm. unique to book publishing i do think that 
music in some ways has the the lowest barrier to entry. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if you have some recording equipment on your computer and you're a good musician, you can make a song in your house. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, book publishing <laughs> You can't is, make your own book. Right? Yeah, you I mean, and anyway. people do, right? I mean, book publishing has the next lowest barrier to entry because you can make your own book, but it's more complicated than a song. And then finally, uh, movies, of course, have the highest barrier to entry <laughs> because of cost. Uh, it's, you know, you have to have talent and you have to have a set and, you know, there's lots of factors. So I think a lot of it is around the the real barriers to entry being financial and time commitments. And then the other barriers to entry being the way that the industry is shutting people out, whether that's, you know, the degree to how intentional that is on the part of the industry, I think is a whole other question. You know, I don't think it's like a malevolence. It, it's just about how... Uh, single-minded they are around their their bottom line goals mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they're cor- you know they're corporations so of course right. they are right i want to talk about this term self-publishing lee wind who you work with at ibpa and we had on the podcast several podcasts ago it once said that self-publishing is a misnomer that you shouldn't do it yourself which i totally agree with and I personally like to call it independent publishing, just like we have indie books and indie or indie movies and indie music. Do you think the public is accepting indie books as readily as they have other indie movements? Um, that's a good question. The public, probably, just to the extent that if a if a reader gets their hands on a book and they don't know who published it and it's indistinguishable from any other book, they probably are not thinking who's the publisher right they're just reading yeah. the book and they're enjoying it and so for that person who's sort of clueless about the ways in which books get published they're just like book in hand reading it like it great um that's very different than the industry though you know the mm-hmm. industry absolutely is still discriminating against independently published books in all kinds of ways from who can submit for reviews and who can join associations. I mean, there is, a, I would say, still a very concerted effort to create a big, bright dividing line between traditionally published books and um, and independently published books. And that has been, you know, the biggest barrier that I have personally been working to crash down for She Writes Press. Um, and I've had a lot of wins, but the hard thing is that it's not necessarily a win for all indie publishers you know lots of times they're just wins for she writes (laughs) well she writes has done some amazing things and put out some beautiful books and i will say you know as a book designer myself i can pretty much spot a self-published book from across the room i can tell you that was self-published just the mistakes that Mm -hmm. people make who aren't real book designers and the thing that she writes has done so well is all of the books you put out look great on the shelf next to any traditionally published book. So good on you, thank number you. one. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, and thank you for, for what you're doing for the industry, because I feel like she, she Writes has really opened up the conversation to say that, hey, just because it isn't published by you know the traditional world doesn't mean that it's not a worthy book. And... I feel like you've opened up the door to other hybrid publishers. And while we're talking about it, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what a hybrid press does and why you went that route? Yeah, a hybrid publisher is basically a middle way. We're situated somewhere between self-publishing and traditional publishing. 
And the business model is a author subsidized model, which automatically means we will never be a traditional publisher. And we're not trying to be a traditional publisher, the authors subsidize the cost. And in return for that, they get a much higher percentage of the royalties. So that's the part that makes us not traditional and more like a self publishing enterprise. But on the flip side, we're not like self publishing at all, because we are a publishing house, we vet the projects, the authors have a lot of collaboration with with us, but they're not steering the ship. We're very involved and managing the cover designs, the interior designs. Authors can certainly have input, but if they come down the road to self-sabotage, which happens all the time, (laughs) yes, it does. (laughs) you know, we're like, no, you're not doing that because it's not done. We know the industry Mm -hmm. standards. We keep them on the straight and narrow. I have a lot of conversations with my authors about this is not about, uh, you know, me not liking your idea. It's about what is in service of the book. We're trying to create saleable books that compete with their traditional counterparts. And that's what's most important to us. So we're really upholding those standards for our authors, and very much functioning in the role of being their publisher. And so in that way, uh, you know, a, a good, legitimate hybrid publisher should be acting in that capacity for their authors. You know, honestly, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> when I when I think about like a traditional publisher, I mean, they're not going to listen to the authors or hold their hand or explain to them why they're making decisions. They're just going to make those decisions. But you've made the choice to educate, hold the hand of and guide your authors. And that's frankly, a lot more time and work. Yeah, absolutely. It's very true. I, I, I did make that choice. I make that choice in service of the authors. I mean, it's very important to me. We, I, I think one of the things that is on offer at She Writes is our education, you know, is that mm, this is, an edu- there's an educational component to it. And mm-hmm. I do want the authors to understand that we're not just making these decisions just because it seems random or like a fluke. We're bringing lots and lots of experience to the table and we deeply understand the industry. And, you know, in my opinion, that's, of course, a selling point. It can be a lot of work. And then we also have a private Facebook group, which is mostly good, (laughs) you know, but occasionally authors are on there, you know, kind of the blind leading the blind. The good news is that because it's a public forum, lots of the alumni have deep experience. And then once they go through the process and they've learned, then they're informing one another about what works. And so it's it's mostly positive. I, I have really enjoyed opening up and allowing the authors to be in touch with one another, which is just an unprecedented thing in publishing where traditional publishers really try to keep their authors away from one another. Totally. Yeah. They could band together and overthrow you at any given time. That's That's true. (laughs) They really could. (laughs) Yes, we are gaining a number. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I love most about the indie publishing world is the networking, the collaboration, you know, Publishing University, which is put on by Independent Book Publishers Association is coming up next month. I've heard so many authors say, 
I'm really surprised by how many people want to share information, want to hold my hand, want to listen, you know, and and help each other. That's not true in a lot of other creative industries. People want to stomp each other to get to the top, but that's not true in the indie world of books. Yeah, and I think that's one of the unique and special things about independent publishing. There is a real spirit of generosity. I, I think Definitely. that is pretty pervasive. Um, people want to help each other learn what they've learned and prevent the mistakes that they made. And I think it's because everybody who's doing indie publishing has either experienced some form of rejection or mm. you realize you're operating outside of the traditional paradigm. And because the traditional paradigm lacks transparency and frankly thinks they're better <laughs> than independent publishing, I think there is right, a little bit right. of an underdog status that we're, you know, we we have strength in that, you know, of being mm. the ones who are on the outside with something to prove, I think. And with something to prove, I think that truism of, you know, the, the rising tide lifting all boats is a thing for independent publishers. We want others to do better so that it doesn't stigmatize all of indie publishing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been in this industry for 20 years now, and the difference between then and now is marked. Mm -hmm. Just the professionalism, the fact that authors know they can't do it themselves or shouldn't do it themselves, get help, get a real editor, you know, hire a book cover designer. It's happening. It's happening. And I'm seeing really beautiful books. You know, again, like I said, coming out of She Writes Press, there's so many fantastic books, life-changing books that wouldn't have, you know, been noticed and wouldn't be available. Not as not yes. as well as they are now, right? So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. You know, speaking of rejection, um, do you have advice for people who have faced rejection in the publishing world and, you know, what they can do next? Yeah, I mean, it, it, obviously, that depends on where you're at in the rejection journey. <laughs> I, I often say that right. th there's a certain tolerance for rejection. And so for some people, that might be shopping your manuscript for six months. For other people, that might be a few weeks. You know, and, and other people I know who have shopped their manuscripts for years and years, I don't have that tolerance for rejection. So mm -hmm. I think... Um, a lot of that is yeah, also resilience comes to mind, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that it just deciding, you know, at what point are you going to say, this isn't the journey that I am going to be on. I wanted it to be, but it's not. And mm -hmm. doing a little bit of a assessment around that. I, I, that's part of what I say in the TEDx talk too, you know, that you have to make room for a new dream. Mm. And I don't think, you know, it's not, killing the old dream you know it's like okay that was there but it's i i really liken it to people who you know you're a good student and you really 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 want to get into yale but you don't get in you know it's not the yeah, end of your right. life it's got very few slots available and it was a dream it didn't happen and then when you go on to the state school where you got a great education and had a good experience you were fine you know and in retrospect maybe that was the better choice for you and i think publishing is the same it's like there's the dream you don't get picked up by random house you have lots of other publishing options and it's it's not going to be until you move forward and have your book in hand that you can look back and assess the journey and be like, yeah, that was really good for me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. We had an author, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago who was going down the path of traditional publishing and she had been reje rejected over and over again. She decided to independently publish her book and instead of a book 
launch party, she threw a funeral for her dream of traditionally publishing. Hmm. Her name is Mary Patrick, and it was a fantastic <laughs> book, mm-hmm. really well done. And her book party was in a church. We literally had a funeral. They took her manuscript that had been rejected, and all the rejection notices, and she was very theatrical and carried it down in a casket. It was pretty. Oh, funny. that's yeah. I mean, I like that. You know, I, that's it's it's very symbolic, right? And and yeah. I think it's a I think it's moving because it's it's also doing something empowering with something that didn't feel good. <laughs> you know, like you're like right. yeah, that yeah. was that was not the best thing that ever happened to me. But I have agency. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I have an agent. It was a packed house, too. Yes, it was. It was a packed house. But oh, people loved it. Yeah, they loved it. And she sold a lot of books. That's very cool. (laughs) Yeah. You once quoted Winston Churchill in saying, success is stumbling from failure to failure with no (laughs) loss of enthusiasm. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I did that at that Ignite talk at the Independent Book Publishers Association Publishing University. Um, I was asked to to talk about my failure, you know, to talk mm. about uh, an embarrassing failure, basically. <laughs> I was like, sure, sign me up for that. I've had plenty yeah, of Yeah, I want to do that. Um, right. <laughs> and so, yeah, it is that. I mean, I, that was the quote that I found that I liked for that particular five-minute talk that I gave. And I shared about something that was really trying for me, you know, an um, error that I made early on in a financial error that I made because I have been kind of forging this path with no template. You know, there wasn't Mm -hmm. another Mm -hmm. hybrid publisher that I could call up and say, hey, how are you doing this? You know, can you share with me your financials and your contract, you know, and and so a lot of it was trial and error. And, um, you know, so the fact that I'm still standing, I think is sometimes pretty impressive in and of itself. Right? Yeah. Speaking of resilience, that's actually one of my questions. I wanted to ask you, what is the most embarrassing thing you've done in your career as a publisher? Yeah, I mean, it was that and it's online. <laughs> People can watch it. It was the So I did this Ignite talk. I was invited to do it. And it was um, it, it was a financial mistake because we we print on we were printing on demand in the beginning. We don't mm-hmm. anymore. Now we do all offset print runs. Our model has changed. But in the very beginning, it was exclusively POD. And I didn't realize, because I just didn't see it, that those POD charges needed to be charged back to the authors against their royalties. And and so for months, (laughs) there were no chargebacks. And when I finally figured it out, it was about a $40,000 line item. and Mm. and, And we had to forgive those costs. There was no way to go back to the authors and say, oh, you owe us $1,000, you owe us $2,000. You know, we just said as a company, we're going to forgive that it was our mistake. And I bore the brunt of that, you know, as a very personal failure. It was really upsetting. And, um, you know, I, I just picked myself up and kept walking. But I mean, even talking about it now, I, I share it because I think it's very helpful to other mm-hmm. publishers to hear that you can make that kind of horrible mistake and keep moving on. I think it's important to share mistakes, but it actually like hurts my heart <laughs> when, oh, yeah. I, when I recall yeah. it because it was it was embarrassing. And it was also, um, you know, it could have sunk the company because we were we were young. We don't have a lot of money. You know, we certainly didn't have that kind of money to just uh, throw into the toilet. You know, when there's it's so easy to spend money 
when you're independently publishing. And, you know, even as you said, what an honest mistake you made. And I was actually expecting you to say that you ordered, you know, like, I don't know, 10,000 books offset, and there was such a glaring mistake, you had to trash them and like reorder. And that's like one of my biggest fears, because we mm. design books at Monkey See Media. And you know, that, that fear of in the middle of the night that you just sent your print off to Korea and the books are going to show up and, you know, the wrong cover was right. you know, something, right? <laughs> Worse yet, something that's actually my fault. Right. So what do you mean? <laughs> well, you oh. never make mistakes, Jeff. I try not to, but man, I, it keeps me up at some nights. Yeah, it's it's stressful. There's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, and I had those, you know, I've had those experiences. You know, we have had um, an error on covers occasionally that have resulted in the destruction of a print run. Uh, those actually at this point in my career are minor mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that happens to every publisher. Destroying a print run is incredibly painful, but, you know, know, a few thousand dollars compared to $40,000 is a huge difference. You know, we try to do everything that we can, but mistakes get made. And there are so many sure. places to mm -hmm. make mistakes in this industry. You know, I mean, when you're dealing with words, like one little typo, uh, you know, and I've had to say to authors occasionally when they have a typo or few in their books, like, no, we're not destroying those, <laughs> you know, that is yeah. part of the deal. There are typos yeah. and we will move on. So, you know, discerning what merits destruction you know and mm -hmm. and what is livable is also part of part of this i find at least two typos in every book i read it doesn't matter who published it yeah it's pretty yeah. tough any, to be any typo first edition free. anywhere yeah it, you're never going to catch them all we had a client once I, I forget what the mistake was but i told her i said you know what this is actually kind of cool it was something where like the date was wrong it was in her manuscript and it was never caught by the copy editor and i said this is your first run and when your book is famous these books are going to be worth more money they're the only <laughs> ones with the error. So That's look a very to the positive future, spin. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's not the end of the world. It's going to be okay. Well, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is you, in one of your talks, I forget which one it was, but you said you were thinking of starting your own publishing company, which we know you did to great success. And a distributor told you that the returns would crush you. Mm -hmm. Crush you. And yet mm -hmm. you did it anyway. And so my question is why? <laughs> yeah, that is very much because I came out of traditional publishing and I understood the value of traditional distribution, which she writes has. Uh, that was yes, another thing that I think is a very mm -hmm. important to say about hybrid publishing, that not all hybrid publishers have traditional distribution, but I would argue that it's a pretty important aspect of what we do. I'd be happy mm -hmm. to talk about it more. I think it's particularly important for fiction and memoir. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that's primarily what we publish, you know, like 80 to 85% of our books are fiction and memoir. And so I was willing to do it because I frankly could not have continued without it. I, I was I was operating this business where all I was seeing was what was missing because I had come out of 13 years of things being done in a certain way. And everywhere I turned, all the things that felt like my hands were tied behind my back was because of lack of distribution. Mm -hmm. And so even though this friend of mine, it was a colleague who said that to me, um, I, I was like, yeah, I, I get it. Um, it's, and I also understood best practices for avoiding crazy returns. You know, there, there are actually things that publishers can do to mitigate returns. Um, 
we also do charge back the returns processing fees to our authors. And mm. so, you know, on it's like to each individual author, you know, like let's say an author gets 10 to 40 returns in a quarter. To, that's a very small expense for them to absorb as compared to the publisher absorbing that across 700 authors. Yeah, absolutely. So we offset that cost. And that's one thing that crushes publishers is that the returns processing fees in and of themselves are super expensive. Um, and I also don't, you know, like if Barnes and Noble, for instance, wants a 1000 copies, I might question that order. Mm. You know, I don't just say, sure, take anything you want. Oh, you want us to print, you know, <laughs> you, you, Costco wants it. Yay. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm yeah. actually oh very skeptical of orders. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm, I'm making very strategic decisions to mitigate those returns. Talk, yeah, talk a little bit more about distribution and what that looks like. I think authors are confused often about what that means and how the process works. Yeah, it is confusing. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, I had a wholesale and there's yeah, traditional. I, intentionally, I have a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, maybe. I yeah. had a big education about distribution when I when I got it for She Writes, because even though I'd been doing it for all these years and had had traditional distribution through my entire career, I actually didn't understand how it worked. I just knew it was like this engine that kind of like, you know, purred in the background and made things happen. Um, but basically, what it means when you have traditional distribution is that your books are being pre-sold into the marketplace. And so right. the value to authors is that, you know, when you self-publish, you put your book up and it's for sale. And then you're like, okay, I hope people go and order it. And maybe you have a publicity campaign and you're driving people to the book. That's very different than an active pre-sell by reps whose job it is to go into bookstores and all kinds of other accounts and pitch your book and make sure that there are pre-orders. And so we have pre-orders for all of our books before the books even publish. So they're guaranteed to be going out into the marketplace, landing in accounts, you know, retailers, um, of course, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all those places, but also libraries. You know, it's kind of like the difference is like the the pipes are open, right? And that's Mm. what I was experiencing when I was so frustrated. All the pipes were closed. I was like, nothing is flowing. Nothing is happening. How can we possibly sell any books if the pipelines are not open, right? So it's about this. It's about the supply chain actually being open and anyone being willing and able to order your book, which when you self-publish is just not not there. Mm -hmm. And then talk about wholesale distribution and what that looks like. Yeah, so wholesale distribution, this is where it gets confusing because these terms, you know, like distribution, traditional distribution, wholesale distribution, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're somewhat interchangeable. And I honestly don't even think that the industry knows the difference. All wholesale (laughs) distribution refers to is that you are agreeing to the terms that whatever account sets. So if a bookstore says, I will only buy at wholesale, it just means that whatever terms they have set, which is usually 55% discount. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's kind of a code for how much money am I getting off the cover price. And it, it, my understanding is that it also means that you're listed. You're in a, in a massive database of books that are available to be ordered, but there's not someone necessarily out there selling your actively selling your book. 
I wouldn't call it wholesale distribution. See, this is where the terminology is just interesting. And you know, you, you and me have a lot of experience and you could get on a panel of people talking about distribution and everyone would and have a different definition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. what you're talking about um, is, you know, because for instance, if you are a self-published author and you opt into, I think what you're talking about is like the wholesale like distribution, Ingram Spark, like yeah. a self-published wholesale option. Yeah, all that means is that... Um, yeah, you're agreeing to the terms set by the bookstores and other retailers. And so it means that they can get the book if they want it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is different than the books really kind of going out in a meaningful way. And that so that's, you know, for, for self-publishers, that's the best that they can do. And absolutely, their books are orderable. You know, that is a good thing. No question about it. But it is very different than when you have traditional distribution. The books are just they're going out in a different way. You know, it is kind of like a lever. It's a different level of mechanism. And because, um, you know, like if you have a distributor like uh, Ingram Publisher Services, for instance, what will happen is that the bookstores will order lots and lots and lots of inventory, and they want that inventory that is easy to get, set at the right discounts, and easy to return. And mm-hmm. so if a self-published author makes a mistake on any of those terms, it can be the difference between ordering and not ordering. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and it can crush you, too. If authors aren't paying enough attention, they can lose money on sales. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, you know, for instance, if you're a self-published author and you're clicking the box that says destroy, you know, destroy mm-hmm. any book that is returned, well, you you know, a, a bookstore could order as many as they want and then just destroy them. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. that can happen. And so I think there's just a lot about the business side of publishing that not very many independent authors really learn and they they learn the hard way. Right. There's a lot of hard way learning in this industry. I mean, yeah. again, like we said, there's so many parts. Yeah. And I learned the hard way. I had 13 years of experience when I started She Writes and the learning curve was still so steep. And mm. so that has been a real wake up call. You know, I would often say, geez, if I have 13 years of experience and this is what I'm experiencing. Yeah. Then what's it like for a brand new author? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Really, really hard. What do you think is the biggest challenge that indie publishers and, you know, indie self-published authors are facing these days? Uh, Definitely sales, discoverability. You know, I mean, I I think the challenge to publish a good book is actually not a challenge. If you're curious and you want to seek out the resources and hire a great cover designer and build your team, like that should be the bare minimum. And I Mm -hmm. don't have much sympathy for people who don't do that well, because it's just not very difficult to find a support team to help. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And so beyond that, when you get over the hump and it's time to start selling that's really hard you know it, it's mm-hmm. very competitive there are lots and lots of books out in the world breaking through the noise is very difficult i think authors find it very frustrating because they're so excited they have their book they're ready to put it out in the world and then the sales are just not there yeah and yeah. um and that's I, you know I, that's very Um, It can be demoralizing, you know, there's lots of authors that are just like really happy to sell whatever they sell. So again, that is oftentimes dependent on your expectations. Right. Yeah. You know, as a branding expert, I work with a lot of authors on platform building. 
And and you mentioned platform at the beginning of this conversation. From your vantage point, do you think that new authors understand how to build platform and why it matters? Some do. You know, I, I think it depends on their person's background. I'm I'm always really amazed that some of my authors have a marketing background or they're just tireless self-promoters or they just have that sparkly personality. They really want to talk about their book no matter where they go. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's very much driven by the individual person's comfort promoting their own book, their charisma. Uh, I think that's part of author platform. <laughs> I really do. Uh, is is, um, it is. It like totally is. Yeah. Capacity to do all of that stuff because there are people who just are shut down around that all the way. Um, mm-hmm. And if you are, it's very difficult to build an author platform if you don't want to do the work, you know, or if you just don't have the wherewithal or the interest or if you think you're bragging every time you open your mouth about your book. Right. So, um so yeah, I, I sometimes definitely some of my new authors who don't have experience are really, really good at it. And sometimes I have authors who, you know, it's the fourth book they've published and they're horrible at it. So I don't think it's about whether you're a debut author as much as you have the A, the personality and B, that you've kind of gotten over whatever hangups you might have about what it looks like to promote yourself online. Right. Yeah, it's critical. I have kind of a fun story. We worked with an author a couple of years ago. And one of the first things he said to me is, I really don't want to sell my book or have anything to do with the promotional piece of it. And I was like, well, that's going to be a problem, but okay. (laughs) So, you know, he hired professionals. He hired a a publicist and uh, some marketing people. He got a professional website and he did it all right. But the thing that I think is the cutest about this story is we we ordered Offset because it was full color. And he received his palette of books and they were in the back of his truck and he went to get himself a beer and a taco. And these two guys were like, hey, man, what are you going to do with that palette when you're done with it? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I'm, do you want it? And they said, yeah, you know, we'll buy you a beer if we can have the palette. So they had a beer and then they followed him back to his place, helped him unload all the books so they could take the palette. And then they were like, wait a minute, what is this? And by the way, it was a book about a boat. Mm-hmm. And these guys were working on boats. These were at dock, on the docks in Point Loma here in San Diego. <laughs> and they looked at the boat, the book and they're like, oh my God, what is this? This is so cool. Can I see that? He's like, oh, well, yeah, sure. Here, here you go. And he handed them the book and they're looking through it and they're so excited about it. And they bought five copies on the spot. That was awesome. Right there. They bought five copies and it clicked something. Now these are like $30 books too. Yeah. They're not inexpensive books, right? Right. right. But they like wanted to share them with all their friends. And, and it's, just, it's this beautiful book and how he traveled. I don't know. What is it? 180,000 miles. Yeah. Around the world on a catamaran, this beautiful yacht that he built for this family in... Um, I think it was Denmark? Somewhere in... Yeah, I think it might have been Denmark. But the, but the point of it is, he got this fire inside of him after he realized how fun it can be when people are excited about your book and when they want to buy it. And just a couple weeks ago, he called me and said, you know, I'll never forget when I told you I didn't want anything to do with marketing <laughs> and selling my book. And now I always have a box of books in my trunk. I sell them all the time. It's so fun. I love being engaged and getting that feedback and getting the reviews. And, you know, I think sometimes it's scary, but we have to push ourselves over that threshold of our discomfort 
And, you know, sometimes we find a little magic there. Yeah, what a great story. I love that. And I have seen a lot of those click moments, you know, those moments where people are like, I don't want to do X, Y, or Z. And then something happens and they're like, oh, well, wait a second. If I do it authentically, actually mm-hmm. feel pretty good about this thing, you know? So it's, yeah. it's a lot of about the approach and the comfort that you have talking about what you're doing and how you're passionate, how passionate you are about your own message or your own story. So yeah, I love that story. So I want to go back to traditional just a little bit. And I have a question for you. I've always heard that fiction authors should complete their manuscript before they shop agents and nonfiction should write a book proposal, but wait till they get picked up to write their manuscript. Where does memoir fall in that mix? <laughs> You know, both, honestly, it's it's either or sort of depending on the agent and depending on the publishing house. Memoir is absolutely still bought on proposal. But Mm -hmm. increasingly, I think because it's such a competitive genre, and it's one that the industry has such a love hate relationship with, that if the book can be complete, I think it's better for the author. My own opinion is that, you know, I think that you're more likely to land a publishing deal if you've done the work and the agent especially is like, oh, it's complete. And then and they fall in love with it and they feel like they can sell it. Another reason Mm -hmm. is because the industry is so flooded, you know, it just in general. And so agents are getting so many more submissions than they used to get. And so it used to be that agents and editors too had more bandwidth to work on manuscripts to shape and develop things. And I was one of those editors who wanted to buy on proposal because I wanted to shape the manuscript. Right. But by the time I left seal, I didn't have the bandwidth for that anymore. There were certain books that I wasn't developmentally editing at all. Uh, And it was just because there's an increase in acquisition, there's more pressure on editors, the quotas are higher. And then you're seeing with agents too, they don't really, and and this is not an indictment against agents, it's just they don't want to do the work, you know, they want to just sell the book. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of agents right now are resentful that the industry is set up in such a way that they should have to spend hours and hours and hours developing a manuscript because for something they used to get, um, you know, maybe a hundred grand for now they're getting 15. Wow. And that's part of the equation mm-hmm. that, you know, some books are selling for big, but if you're an agent and you've put 50 hours into a manuscript and then you sell it for $15,000, it's like, hmm, was that really worth it? And so that's mm-hmm. why, you know, that goes into the equation for why agents might be wanting to take on memoirs that are done. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. You've interviewed so many wonderful memoirs like Mary Carr, Patty Smith, Tyari Jones, and you teach classes on memoir. She writes press, publishes quite a few wonderful memoirs. I- I'm curious what got you excited about memoir to begin with? Yeah, I, just working at Seal <laughs> because okay, there were okay. so many memoirs. I, you know, I started that job in 2004 and I left in 2012 think that timing is right. And um, I just mainly worked on memoirs. I mean, there was a lot of books at Seal that you might call hybrid memoirs, like they would be sort of have a self-help component to them. But it was a women's press and it was about women's stories. And all of a sudden, I was just immersed in the world of memoir. And I was reading a lot of memoir because I was trying to read the competition. 
And I didn't even realize I had become a memoir expert until, (laughs) (laughs) you know, until all of a sudden I was thinking about leaving SEAL and I was like, wow, I know a lot about memoir. And then Um, I met Linda Joy Myers, mm -hmm. who is my co-conspirator, you know, in all things memoir. We teach together. We do all kinds of stuff together. And, um, you know, she was really the one who helped me think beyond SEAL, you know, Mm. to be like, we could do, we could teach together. We could do this. We could do that. And we've been, you know, great partners ever since. Yeah. And doing really phenomenal stuff, great classes and so much great advice for people. I'm curious though, are there, can, can you name a couple memoirs that you've read recently that you're super excited about? There's been such a surge in incredible memoirs. It's been amazing. I mean, the books I, you know, I try to read as much as I can. I read my own authors as well, but probably the book that I was the most excited about last year was Danny Shapiro's Inheritance. Mm. Um, I adored it. I always, I've already loved her for a long time. And I think this is by far her best memoir. Um, I read Adrian Brodeur's memoir. I've reading a lot of the memoirs that, um, that are coming, you know, these people who come on our podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. There's just been um, Chantel, um, what was, is it Say My Name? This this book by the woman who, I I can't remember Say My Name or Remember My Name, but she's the one who came forward about her sexual uh, um, assault allegations against the swimmer at Stanford. It was just gorgeously written. You know, there's just Mm. been a lot of really incredible memoirs coming out. Um, Carmen Machado's new memoir. um, I'm sorry, I'm just off the top of my head with the titles. Um, (laughs) I I threw you on that one. I should have given you some warning. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. But her her (laughs) book is also experimental and interesting. You know, so there's just been... I mean, I feel like almost every week I'm ordering new memoirs. It's called In the Dream House. I just had okay. to, yeah, that okay. I, but I highly recommend that. So yeah, there's just um, everywhere I turn, really beautiful memoirs being released all the time. How do you find the time to write? You do so much. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not right. Read. I meant to say read. Oh, but read. write too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with reading... I listen to audiobooks. I um, mm. I I read really fast. Um, it, you know, with the podcast, I feel that I need to be reading our guests' books, and so mm-hmm. I just sort of incorporate it into like this is just part of what I'm doing. You know, like I read Kiese Lehman. That's another amazing book. Uh, heavy um, in preparation for interviewing him, and I was just like, oh my gosh, how could I not read this book? You know. So there's right. part of it that feels easy once I once I get into it. Um, but yeah, I I don't watch TV. You know, I, I I just don't. And so I I think for people who maybe watch a lot of series and stuff, that's probably the time that I'm reading in bed. Right. Yep. I know exactly what you mean by that. You should see the look on her face right now. <laughs> <laughs> She's wincing. Well, I will say, you know, in the, the turn of the year, you know, of uh, 2020, we didn't watch any television. Mm-hmm. For, and I got so much reading done. And I was so excited about it. But we did just start watching a series that... Well, and I can get sucked time. in, you know, like, <laughs> I, I just started watching Game of Thrones after it's over, you know, and it oh, was no. part, oh, partly no. because I went to Croatia. And yeah. I was like, Oh, I have to see Game of Thrones. And so <laughs> but it's it's perfect, because I only watch it like, 
when I'm on on route to something like at the airport or you know so it's kind of a nice treat um but but they are very addictive you know like once you start a series then you're you're kind of locked in so you've got years and years of travel viewing ahead of you. Yes, I'm very excited. Ten seasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Game of Thrones is one of those series that, like, we watched it and we loved it, but it was so hard to watch. And I wouldn't, I'm not going to ever put myself through that again because some of it is really violent and. And that's it's one of the reasons. Watch. Yeah, it was one of the reasons that I resisted for so long. Um, mm-hmm. And since I'm just newly in it, I said to someone, "It's not that violent." And they're like, well, "Wait, it gets Wait. a lot worse." <laughs> <laughs> and it does, well, but it's so least, good. At least you don't have to wait a year between seasons. That's true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so good for you. I'm <laughs> that's awesome. Unlike the readers of the books, who I think are still waiting for the. The final installment. Mm-hmm. It's like 15 years between books. Right. Yeah, that's, right. That's and I, I do think for people, you know, who are like, how can I how can I find time to read that? Oftentimes it really is just about finding the right book. You know, mm-hmm. like then you're so, ex- so you can be equally excited to get back to the book. And, was, and that is true for audio as well. I mean, one of the things I really like about audio is that I listen to books while I do dishes and while I'm, you know, kind of puttering around the house. And that's very helpful. Yeah, you can clean. Plus, you can listen to it, at, you know, one and a half times and get through it faster. Right. Yes. I don't do that, though. You don't. I can't. You can't do it. <laughs> I do it on podcasts. I'll be honest. I have never listened to, I've listened to two audiobooks in my life. I really enjoy reading them. Yeah. I haven't gotten to the audiobook thing yet. I will, though. I think I will. Well, speaking of writing, I... Brooke, I think you are an amazing writer. I love reading your pieces, whether it's your advice or your books. And yet, I once heard you say that a teacher in high school told you that basically your creative writing sucked. (laughs) And I just wonder, like, what made you decide to ignore her words and follow your dreams? Yeah, that was a man. Maybe I don't know if I should say not surprisingly, but I, I do sort of feel like that. <laughs> in retrospect. careful. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and and he. I mean, it was very crushing. You know, I I think so many people have experiences like that from teachers, male and female, of course. It's just that sticks out in my mind, and. Um, I don't know. It took a long time. You know, it took a long time before I decided that I could or should write. I think it it was about finding my voice, about feeling that I had something to say. I I do think that he probably single-handedly crushed any aspirations I had around fiction, though. You know, I just Mm. never, never felt compelled to write fiction. And, you know, I can't blame it on him, but I just, you know, I I think it was finding my voice and feeling like, oh, I have something to say in this world of publishing. And um, yeah, but it it was a long time between, you know, high school and um, when I wrote my first book. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to me that someone can say something like that to us and it affects us, you know, so deeply and we carry that with us forever. And how many people don't move past it and don't hold on to their dreams, you know, and let that crush them and send them in a different direction. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's so prevalent and it's really Mm -hmm. tragic, actually, because these teachers who ostensibly are out there because they want to foster the dreams of their students are 
the worst offenders and mm-hmm. so many people that I know who just got eviscerated by teachers or people who, you know, were even like in MFA programs and there to support and foster new talent and instead made these people feel horrible about themselves. And in retrospect, a lot of these authors now have said, you know, I think they had their own crushed dreams. They were acting out of spite sometimes or even competitiveness. Mm. It's sure. it's a really, um, you know, kind of unfortunate byproduct, I think, of creativity. Interesting. Do you have a memoir inside of you? Yeah, I do think so. I think I'm not in any hurry. <laughs> um, I I think I, I, I believe, you know, as long as I live, uh, as long as I think I'm going to live that I will write a memoir someday. But I, it, it's not something I see myself doing anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a young son, I'm really immersed in the work that I'm doing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's percolating. Nice. Nice. Well, I will definitely look for that. (laughs) Thank you. So you've had a really incredible career in in publishing, in writing. What are you the most proud of in your career so far? Uh, Gosh, that's a great question. I don't, I've never thought about it before. I, I would have to say she writes, you know, I think it's been the most ambitious thing that I've taken on. I'm really proud of its success. And I also know that that is not single handedly about me. You know, I mean, it's like this amazing team, what she writes was before I came on board, you know, it was founded by Kami Wyckoff, who is my co founder in this endeavor. And what she writes already was before I even came on the scene was just so incredible. And, um, you know, being able to work with women in the capacity that I do to have a female run um, business, you know, the the woman who owns the parent company, uh, Crystal Patriarch, you know, I mean, we really um, are a collaborative and and kind of amazing team of women doing this. And so I do a lot of things and I wear a lot of different hats, but it's just like that She Writes Press has been so successful and so well received and that it has such a strong reputation really makes me proud. It's pretty cool. I'm and, proud of it. And you. the returns didn't crush you. Yeah, <laughs> we're, <laughs> right. we're doing right. it. <laughs> what can we expect to see from you next? Oh, geez. I mean, because Right on Sisters just came out in August, and I think that that's my latest book. And I think sometimes right after a new book comes out, it can just feel like this point of you need some creative reset or rest. And I'm so in that right now. I was thinking about doing another TEDx talk. I was thinking about writing a screenplay, but I'm kind of in like creative, I don't know what, like, um, pause, (laughs) pause mode. So it will be something, but right now I don't know what it will be. Well, talk to us about Right On Sisters. So the the subtitle is Voice, Courage, and Claiming Your Place at the Table. Talk to us about why you wrote that book. That book was a long time in the making. You know, I I published it last year in 2019. And that was the book that I had been wanting to write since I was at SEAL. I felt like the time that I spent at SEAL working for an all-woman publisher and all that I had learned about working with women authors all of these years gave me the platform to write this book. Um, I had this idea that I just wanted to shine light on the experience of writing as a woman, publishing as a woman, and all of the barriers that I witnessed women 
encounter a lot of them of mm-hmm. their own making, but a lot mm-hmm. of them certainly sanctioned um, by the publishing industry. And so I, I think I wanted to write a book that was like, it's hard. It actually is harder to write and publish as a woman. So let's just acknowledge that and, mm. you know, kind of have that be the baseline. And from there, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> you know, like yeah, I'm very right. into yeah. empowering women writers. And I, I spend a lot of time talking to prospective authors, you know, and there's a lot of whining and a lot of hemming and hawing and a lot of you know, just kind of like, uh, like self-sabotaging. And I, I felt that if I could put a message into this book that was like, look, all that stuff is legitimate, but it's not helping you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That And so it's like one part, this is how it is. And one part, like, get out there and do the work. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been oh, great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You can learn more about Brooke Warner at brookewarner.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-E-W-A-R-N-E-R, where you can join her mailing list, follow her on social, buy her books, and sign up for a complimentary strategy session. You can also listen to her podcast, Write Minded, weekly inspiration for writers at podcast.shewrites.com. This has been another episode of The Premise. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise and subscribe and rate wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Are you an author with a story to tell? but you're just not sure how to get that story out? Guess what? You don't have to do it alone. Marnie Friedman is an incredible writing coach. She offers personalized support and expertise to guide you from a kernel of an idea to completion. Visit MarniFriedman.com to learn more. That's M-A-R-N-I-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N.com. This episode is brought to you by Monkey C Media, a small boutique design firm offering award-winning websites, book cover designs, book trailers, and photography services. And full disclosure, we love what we do. Chad and I founded Monkey C Media in 2004, and we're still going strong. Visit monkeycmedia.com. That's M-O-N-K-E-Y, the letter C, media.com to see how we can help you promote your book, Build a powerful online presence. Mm-hmm. What else you got, Chad? Uh, let's see. We've got the San Diego Writer Festival. San Diego Writers Festival. There That's are many writers. <laughs> and they're a proud sponsor of our Premise podcast as well. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be awesome. This year's keynote is Scott Gimple. He's the head writer of The Walking Dead. And the festival is free. It's open to the public. There's going to be educational panels and workshops, famous authors, up-and-coming authors, kids and teen programming, and live theater performances. Oh, and there's music. Oh, and there's food. Oh, but wait, there's more. You also get a copy of our home game. Oh, you're silly. But wait, there is more. There will be literary agents taking pitches from authors looking to get their books published. The festival is about building community and celebrating storytelling of all kinds. It's happening April 4th, 2020 at the Coronado Public Library.